When I'm heading off to Nicaragua or Papua New Guinea, any place where I don't expect to find many tourists, I know there'll be a carefully researched guidebook published by Lonely Planet to help me out. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Just like my own travel company, Lonely Planet started out small in the 1970s. The grapevine for backpackers traveling the hippie trail from Istanbul to Kathmandu. Today, that company publishes over 400 different guidebooks. And today on Travel with Rick Steves, Lonely Planet founder Tony Wheeler shares his story. He's an Englishman who settled in Australia and considers the entire planet to be his home. There is a real kick out of doing a guidebook that you know nobody else is doing. I really like the fact that if you want a Mongolia guide, come and talk to us. Or if you want an Iran guide, come and talk to us. Lonely Planet's army of researchers have empowered a new generation of travelers to discover their own magic on the road. Come along as Tony and I compare notes on the fun we've found in 35 years of exploring our planet and writing about it. It's all this hour on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. From a humble start in the early 1970s along the old hippie trail from Istanbul to Kathmandu, Tony Wheeler and his army of researchers have covered the planet, bringing travelers hundreds of Lonely Planet guidebooks. Lonely Planet is famous for providing information for independent travelers. Their guidebooks gained fame for covering Asia and the developing world. And when they started publishing guidebooks to Europe, Tony and I became competitors. Tony and I each started traveling in similar styles back in the 1970s, so I'm eager to find out after all those years of dusty backpacks, bouncy rickshaw rides, grotty bathrooms, and airplane turbulence, how he built his company, and what magic does international travel still hold for him today. In the hour ahead, we meet the founder of Lonely Planet and get his take on providing the world with good guidebooks. Tony, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. It's been a, been a long time, yeah. 35 years, and you still got your backpack. Well, look, some places in the world you can go to, and you can have all the money in the world, but you're still going to be carrying a backpack around rather than rolling something around on wheels, because that's the, that's the option. That's what, what there is. Isn't there, that the truth? A lot of people judge their roller bags by how it works at the Atlanta airport, but hey, you're not yeah. going to find that in Burma. No, there, there are lots of places where the wheels will not roll very well at all. And as I was preparing for this interview, I, I, a lot of it was back in the 70s. Those were the hippie days of travel. That's when you got your start. That's when I got my start. What happened? You, I, you, I think a lot of us did. I think, you know, we baby boomers or a bit beyond that, we, um, we started going to places our parents didn't go to or yeah. going more regularly or going with greater interest or whatever. It became a bigger part of our life than previous generations. And I think that's the foundation of Lonely Planet, certainly the foundation of my work, is the, the greatest trips I ever had. And they were as footless and frenzy free kid before I knew I was going to be a travel writer. Yeah, you may have traveled before with your parents, right. but it, it isn't until you suddenly find yourself for the first time you know, in a hotel and think, oh, what do I do? How's, how is this handled? Or having to get visas yourself or buy tickets and so on. And suddenly it's a whole different ball game than traveling with parents when you were a kid. So those first trips are always, are always very exciting. And I think you see things with new eyes. I really like it when young people use our books and come back and say, ah, oh, I had a great time. That was one of the best experiences of my life. Or I, I went somewhere, I did something I wouldn't have done otherwise. You gave me that little bit of extra inspiration to go a step further. You know, it's funny you say that because I have some journal excerpts that I've put in italics in some of my books that were right out of my journals from the mid-70s when I was a student. And when some kid perfectly one generation after me says, my girlfriend and I, we read that journal entry and we did the same thing in Morocco. It's just, it's just one of the greatest comments I can get from somebody using yeah. one of my books. Yeah, I, I think it's a real thrill. And the nice thing is the essential beauty of travel and challenge of travel and wonder of travel hasn't changed. 
No. One of the things I always say is, look, the, the fact that you're not the first person at the top of the mountain makes no difference. The view is still just as good for the thousandth person to get there as the first. Sure. Now, your first big trip, what, you fell in love with some girl in London and you <laughs> went to Australia on a shoestring? 70, 72. I mean, I, I'd, I'd done some kicking around Europe before that. I was, I was living in Britain, so you know, Europe was no distance away at all. And you know, I'd camped in lots of places in Europe and done, done a fair bit of travel in the summer vacations. But the big trip was 72. My wife, Maureen, and I set off from London in an old car and we drove the car to Afghanistan, you know, right the way across Europe and right the way across Asia. And You so, drove a car you picked up in London in, all the way to Afghanistan. Yeah. And remarkably, we had no... But, you know, I've done earlier this year, I've 35 years later, I've done a somewhat similar trip down the coast of Africa, buying an old car and driving it down there. So it, it's huh. um, still possible today. So, and what did you do with the car when you got it to Afghanistan? We sold it for a $5 profit. <laughs> <laughs> Free then, travel. That's budget travel. Yeah, that is. That was perfect. I mean, that, we, was, that was in the days when people would hang out in front of the American Express office and sell their cars. Well, their travelers. They still, that? They, they still do today. You know, the, the thing of going to London or somewhere in Europe and buying a car and driving around for the summer and coming back and selling it. Classic supply and demand. If you're buying in the fall when everybody's selling... Yeah, you'll make yeah. money, and if yeah. you're selling in the spring, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, traveling out of season is, a, is a, always a great way of seeing places. Oh, yeah. and it's remarkable how sometimes just a little bit out of season can make all the difference. Oh, it makes a huge difference. There's nothing in the world that pleases me like a pretty little girl from across the sea. But I think that I went a little too far when I got myself a foreign car. Cause you can't get in and you can't get out unless you do some squirming about. I'm speaking with Tony Wheeler, the founder of Lonely Planet. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Tony's new book, Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story. Now, let's go back to that early 70s trip then. You did a trip around Europe with Maureen before you did the trip. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we, we knew we traveled well together before we set off on the big one. Now, way back then, before you could buy a Lonely Planet guidebook, what guidebook did you use? You know, we did have a sort of guide. It was a thing called the BIT Guide. Yes. Uh, BIT was this London Underground Information Center. It was a creation of the 60s, and they did all sorts of things. You know, if you were, you were in trouble over drugs or something, you know, or you needed a place to live, you didn't have any money, they'd... They'd help you out in these ways. And one of the ways they financed it was by the bit guides. The bit guides were these. Today, it would be a chat room on some website. But back then, people sent them postcards and letters. And a guy who later wrote for us assembled them into these mimeographed information sheets. About There were three bit guides. There was the bit guide to, to Asia, which was the really good one. There was a pretty reasonable one to Africa. And there was one to South America, which was really pretty hopeless. Another classic one was the Across Asia one, right? From Across Istanbul. Asia one, yeah. I used yeah. that one in 78. And yeah. I, I think that was sort of the end of the bit guide time. But, it was uh, just, it was definitely grinding to a halt by that time. In fact, yeah. I think it was sort of a radial version that was a couple yeah, of years old. Yeah. But still, you knew who was in prison in Afghanistan and how many blankets yeah. they needed. And all these first world guys would help other guys out and they'd be careful about this at the border. And uh, it, was full of, I mean, it was full of misinformation as well. You know, you knew some people were eight miles high when they wrote this stuff, but um, it, they were great creations, the bit guides. Now, that was the old hippie trip from Istanbul to Kathmandu. I measured it by how many border crossings do we have to go because the border crossings were so stressful. They were, they were stressful, but they were just amazing. And I think the one from Iran into Afghanistan was the one I remember most clearly. That's my favorite one. You see all these Volkswagen buses that have been just picked clean, yeah, <laughs> just discarded on the side. Cause oh, you, you see, you saw all sorts of things. I, I, Afghanistan in those days was a wonderful place to I go. I had to wait a whole day until the nurse came to check my 
shot cart or something yes. like that. Remember that? Oh, you know, if you paid some money, you'd have probably got away a day yeah, Maybe I, I should have had a, a bit guide for that, but yeah. I'll never forget. My, my friend needed a shot, and there at the border, I remember watching the needle bend as it, the, the well-worn needle bend as it tried to go into I, my I friend's wanna, arm. I wouldn't want to think about it. <laughs> the old hippie trail to uh, Kathmandu. During those times, it was like magical travel, and so many people, that was the best trip of their life. You write guidebooks for every corner of the world. Is there anything like that today? There probably is. You know, I, I'm always amazed how you can get to the most obscure places and you think, you know, well, I'm pretty wonderful being here. This has been a, quite an achievement to get here. And you turn around and you've got there in a four by four and somebody then turns up on a bicycle that they've bought in the bazaar two countries down the road. So th there is exciting travel still. And, you know, one of the things I really like is just doing very ordinary travel. I did a trip through China about year and a half ago. I, I set off from Singapore on my way to Shanghai. And I decided what I would do is I'd just go straight through and never take a flight. I would stick to ground level the whole way. So I went train through Malaysia and buses through Thailand and a little mini truck across into um, Cambodia and up through Vietnam into China. And I went through China going into towns that were not on any sort of tourist destination at all. They weren't, you know, the Shanghai's and Beijing's and Xi'an's and so on. They were sort of second-level towns. And, th and that was really interesting because you were seeing places where there weren't any tourists. You have to go overland. It's yeah. so easy to fly from Bangkok to Sri Lanka yeah. and have your magic on the beach. But if you actually go overland, now that you mention that, I remember once I decided just to ad-lib it from uh, Chiang Mai back to Bangkok and having to go to places that weren't even covered in the guidebooks. And, yeah. you know, ad-libbing the transportation. Here's a festival. Let's just drop into the village and what festival's going on. I remember I was shooting a, like a little bow and arrow at a target and I, I did well and they, they cheered and they brought me condoms. <laughs> and what's going on? It was, a, it was a birth control festival for this village to teach them safe sex, you know? Cab cabbages and condoms was the name of a string of restaurants in um, Thailand at one time. Was oh, that right? So yeah. I wouldn't have had that had I taken the express train to no, Chiang Mai absolutely. and did the, you know, the, the standard thing. Well, there's a lot, you know, traveling around Japan, just getting off the, the tourist track in Japan. You go to the, the second string to, to um, Shikoku, which you know is one of the, is the fourth biggest island and no foreign tourists go there at all. You're getting far down the line of things. There's lots of tourists, but only oh, Japanese tourists. And you meet people who really are curious about you. I remember being naked in a bath with this old man and he was so angry at America for what we did to the Indians and he just couldn't get over that. <laughs> so here I am to, to trying to explain, well that was a long time ago and we're trying to clean up for act and all this kind of thing, but you meet people that don't see you as a dollar sign. You're no. not part of the economy. Yeah. And, and that's and critical that's, if you're going to have good travel. You know, it's unusual seeing that in Japan because you, you, you can be quite used to that in the developing world. But in a really advanced country, to be off the beaten track is a whole different perspective. I've, I've done a lot of hitchhiking back in, back in my younger days yeah. as well. Both sides of it. I've, I've picked up a lot of hitchhikers over the years as well. But hitchhiking, unfortunately, in most places is not, the, is not what it once was. New Zealand, Ireland probably. Is it the same in the developing world as it was? I mean, of course, you don't hitchhike in Germany now because everybody has a car. But yeah. I, I found in Thailand and, and Indonesia... Anything rolling down the street, if there's room in the back, you can hop in. Yeah, I think a lot of the developing world, hitching is really just another form of public transport. Yeah, it's almost you know, a common courtesy to pick somebody up if you're rolling yeah, down the street. Yeah, you know, country. any car is a taxi. You know, it's, it's a private car when there's just one person in it. As soon as there's two of you, it's a taxi. Well, you were just in Iran. Last time I was in Iran, that, that was the thing. You pointed at the pavement, and any car going by would stop, and it was just an ad-lib taxi service. The last time I was in Iran, which was only a year or two ago, I, I went out to a restaurant outside of the town I was in, and getting back to the town, there were no taxis around, and I just stuck my thumb out, and the guy picked me up, and I... 
this wasn't a taxi thing. You know, he didn't charge me. He was just interested to take me for a ride. And, oh, yeah. um, well, that's an advantage sure. when you're a first world traveler in the developing world. People see you as a fascinating conversation. Mm, absolutely. I found that in Japan for sure. People would pick me up all over the place. Oh, Japan is, a, Japan is a wonderful place for independent travel. But, you know, people think there's, I mean, there is a language barrier, but there's also this overwhelming politeness and uh, responsibility to make sure you don't get too lost. Well, there's the overwhelming confusion, at least Confu- on my part. It's overwhelming confusion as well, yeah. The and then the overwhelming good. politeness. Yeah. And yeah. then the language barrier. And yeah, when you get travel fun. Oh, you, you sure do, yeah. <laughs> Is your living room, does it look like a souvenir shop? There are a lot of souvenirs around my house. I, I say I've got a, a high-class a high collection of tourist art. You call it high-quality tourist art. High-quality tourist art, yeah. yeah. What, what does that mean? Buy, What's high-quality tourist well, art? Well, I, I don't buy junk. You have a little I, plastic gondola with Christmas lights on it? I, we actually mm-hmm. do have at our office quite a good collection of snow domes. We have a world-class collection of snow domes. I mean, that's the perfect appalling souvenir. When you do get off the beaten path, you're thankful to have a good guidebook. I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking with the man who's assembled an army of researchers to keep us up to date with even the most distant corners of our world. Our special guest today is the founder of the Lonely Planet Publishing Empire, Tony Wheeler. We'll continue to explore how Tony's travels led to a company which grew into the largest travel publisher in the world. We'd also enjoy hearing your stories. You'll find a feedback form in the radio section at ricksteves.com. And you can participate in discussion boards on dozens of topics pertinent to the independent traveler. Post your comments on the graffiti wall at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling all over the place because we're talking with Tony Wheeler, and Tony is the founder of Lonely Planet Publications. There are guidebooks literally to every country on this planet. Uh, Tony publishes, I think, 400 uh, different destination titles and 600 uh, books in all at Lonely Planet, and Tony is talking up his newest book, Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story. Tony, when you think of the magic of travel, and, and you and I have been at it for 30-some years these days, is the, are people backpacking today? Is, it, is there the same kind of backpacking magic today, the essence of good travel? I think today one of the interesting things about travel is it has sort of splintered into all sorts of different directions. There are all sorts of different travel. And, yeah, there are people still backpacking. You know, I, I live in Australia, and when I first went to Australia 30-some years ago, tourists were very few and far between. There were the occasional wealthy tourists, you know, who were going... Mm-hmm. going everywhere, and they went to Australia as well. 
And the backpackers you met at that time were very intrepid. It was very unusual just to meet a backpacker traveling around Australia. Although the facilities were there, there were lots of Australians traveling around. Mm-hmm. And if they were staying in um, campsites or hostels, well, you know, so could a, a visitor from overseas. Do you have a lot of pressure as a publisher trying to sell books to cater to more affluent travelers? Yeah, I mean, I, and I'm quite happy to cater for more affluent travelers. I mean, I, I've done some affluent travel trips in recent mm-hmm. years because there's some things, you know, if you want to go down to Antarctica, and I've been to Antarctica twice, it's going to be fairly expensive. Mm-hmm. It's not a cheap trip. You know, if you go go down on an Antarctic ship, the, the sort of ships that go down there, the good ones are really quite small. They're only a 30 or 40 passengers. And that that's not going to be like a big cruise ship, but it's going to be as expensive as a big right. cruise ship. Oh, sure. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, it's a great trip, and the people who are going down there are really interested in travel. Let's talk about the, the very beginning of Lonely Planet. Back in the 70s, to me, there was a community of travelers, and I remember being on that, on that trail going from Istanbul over to Kathmandu. There was a community on the bus that I was on, travelers from all over the world, and there was a hunger for information. We were all scavenging around. What book do you have? What do you have? Do you have this? this? And, and I would spend afternoons just borrowing books from other people. Of course, we had that bit guide you were talking about. Is there a moment in your travels that you realized, man, there is a need for this kind of information. Somebody's got to do it right. Yeah, we we decided in 1973 when we were living in Sydney in Australia that we should put our trip down and make it into a book. It, it actually developed bit by bit that people... Bit by bit, yes, oh, yeah. <laughs> like just like the bit guides. Now, people would ask us, you know, and we'd sort of scribble some notes down, and they'd say, well, you know, which which places should I go in India? And we'd sort of list it, you know, one, two, three, four to yeah. ten. Or, you know, which which of the borders are difficult? And, we'd, and we ended up thinking, we're, we're doing so much of this, why don't we put it down in, in, in book form? So the book developed almost by accident that way. But I think it was an era that when that was happening, because Moon Publications, Bill Dalton started just around the same time. He actually did his first book just a few weeks before us. And he was actually, even though he was American, he was actually in Australia at the same time. I was just thinking about that. My favorite travel guidebook writers, publishers, all started this way. I mean, Arthur Fromer, of course, started that way. Yeah. As a GI in, in Germany. And, and Arthur said, you know, he's an elderly gentleman now. But, you know, what he did was really pioneering. I've oh, got yeah. a huge amount of respect for Arthur Fromer. Oh, yeah. And he just realized that there's people that want to understand the world and we can share information. Yeah, you know, the, the real thing that Arthur did was he realized that guidebooks didn't have to be just the history, the culture, how big the church is, mm. how many pictures there are in the gallery, that the, the getting there and the where to stay and the good restaurants to eat in were just as much a part of the tourist experience. Well, and if you read any sort of statistics, you know, people travel to eat, so you better yeah. have some restaurants in your yeah, guidebook. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you started the Lonely Planet series. At that time, I believe there were the Fromer, Fodor, Birnbaum, and Fielding books out. Yeah, and, and the Blue Guides in, in Europe. There were, there were a few things. How was but... Lonely Planet different? Well, I, I because think you're huge now, and I would uh, say bigger than bigger than these most, guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think the, the the difference initially was that we were just doing places that other people weren't doing. You know, we we were looking for the little niches, the the places that that the big guys who we sort of perceived as being in New York and London, they weren't doing those places. So we we did that, but I think also we did bring a different perspective to them. We were a little bit, I guess, we're younger, we were hipper, we were looking at things in a slightly more more offhand manner in a way. Although we always had, I think we always had a great respect for the cultures and the places we went into. We were fascinated by them. But we were a little bit, um, a bit more nonchalant about things. And that, that, I think that flavor came over in the books that we were enjoying ourselves. Well, it's a backpacker heritage, I think. Yeah, I think it I is. Mean, you've got backpacker yeah. roots. Yeah. That's and, a, I, and you know, the, and I'm, I'm fine with it because I think backpackers, they, 
The money they spend goes in at ground level. It, it goes straight into local people's pockets. They're pioneers in many ways. They open the doors to other things. And the other thing, of course, from a the business perspective, and this book is a little bit of business as well, is you, you want young people buying your books. You want young people joining you because they're going to stick with you. You know, old fogies like me, we're not going to be around forever. But the 18-year-old doing that first trip, they've, they've got a lot of traveling ahead of them. Yeah, it's the gateway. This is their first trip. If it's a good one, there's going to be a lot of them. If it's not you a know, good one, they're going to just buy a fancier car next year instead. Absolutely. And, and the, another thing, of course, is that a young person who's got themselves to the other side of the world and is traveling somewhere, they've got a lot more get up and go than someone mm-hmm. of the same age who's sitting at home watching it on television. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I'm joined by Tony Wheeler. Tony is the founder of Lonely Planet Publications. Uh, it's the biggest travel publisher on the planet right now with guidebooks to literally every country on the planet. And Tony is talking about his new book. It's Unlikely Destinations, and it's the story of Lonely Planet. Tony, you got 400 books now. Uh, it started back in the what early 70s as a pile of notes. Uh, tell me the evolution of the company from the start. Well, the first book we did was an accident. We didn't set out and have the intention of doing a guidebook at the end of it. We traveled across Asia. We spent six months. It was a wonderful trip. And at the end, we thought somebody should do a book about this. So our first guide was a a guide to the Asia Overland Trip, the Hippie Trail, as people later on call it. That book hasn't survived because the Asia Overland Trip effectively died. Uh, Iran, Afghanistan, they more or less killed that book. But the second book we did, Southeast Asia on a Shoestring, is still around now. 13 editions later, people started calling it the Yellow Bible because the first edition had a a yellow cover. It sold over a million copies. It's, you know, a book that a lot of people have a strong connection with. That was um, 1975 we put that second book out. We traveled 74, published it 75. But the big jump forward after that was doing a guide to India, which came out in in 81, we researched it in 1980. Mm-hmm. And that was a, it was a big book. It was, it was twice as big as anything we published previously. It was a book that there was a big pent-up demand for, that there were a lot of people going to India, and it was a country that people had a fascination for. Nobody goes to India and comes away unaffected. You don't go there lightly. You don't think, I'm just going to go there and lie on the beach or hit, hit a few restaurants. You go to India because you've got a real interest in the place, and you, you really want to see it and understand it. So from a guidebook publisher's point of view, India is just perfect territory. When people ask me what my favorite country is, I kind of surprise them and say India. It really is. When, you, when you've been to India, there's something just incredible about yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's like in, that old story, you know, the, the, you know, when you tire of life, London, you tire of life. Right. India, too. India. And, and India rearranges all your furniture. We're so, <laughs> Americans especially, I think, have so many, uh, you know, truths that we find self-evident and God-given. And you go to India and you realize, oh, I'm not so self-assured anymore. <laughs> uh, across the board, things are different in India. I remember being there in 84, and that's when your book had really taken off. And I was just a self-published author there, and I had, you know, a handful of copies of a single title out, I think. And I saw the penetration you had every traveler had the Lonely Planet <laughs> India guidebook, even if they didn't speak English. That was it. Look, I, I've loved seeing our India book being used by Indians. Yeah. You know, there's nothing better than going to India and um, going to some uh, historic site and seeing two Indian people, you know, the woman in a sari going by and looking at your book, you know, and reading oh, about it. It's my favorite compliment if a local yeah, oh, person uses one of my guidebooks. Yeah, you know? it's, it, it is fantastic. It really makes you feel good. And by the way, reading Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story, I, it was just engrossing for me anyways because I'm, I'm in the same, the same business. Thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just, the, the challenges you had to get this off the ground and the, the challenges I think you must have had in delegating the writing and finding good people to run because you couldn't do it all yourself. So you found some key people that really helped things take off. Tell me about that. 
fairly early on, we realized, you know, we couldn't do everything ourselves. If we were going to be a real publishing house, it required more people working with us, more people researching the books. And uh, one of the people who joined us really early on, and I think in the early years of the business, he had a, played a major part of it, was a, a guy called Jeff Crowther. And he was a real product of the 60s hippie sort of thing. He'd lived in London. He'd worked on those bit guides. He'd gone back and forth. He'd lived, he'd been in India for a year. You know, he'd, he'd traveled very widely. He got you know, every disease from malaria to hepatitis you could pick up along the way. He'd, he'd traveled hard as well. And he just had a real interest in the places. He, you know, he could name every hmm. ruler of a, every country in Africa and he knew the history and he was a, a very interesting guy, a very hard-working guy and a very hard-living guy as well. This is before you could email home your work. Did he ever lose his notes? I don't think Jeff ever did. You know, he, Jeff, Jeff would come through and, um, you know, as I say, he was a hard-living Because you got some great person. stories in your book about writers that got into all sorts of accidents and hardships yeah, and, and, and no they still hung on to their, they hung on to their notes. I've, I've had stories from my writers, you know, the boat's sinking and the last thing they want to let go of is the notes. <laughs> I've also heard some sad stories. I'm not, not a guy who write, wrote for us, but a, a German friend who mm. right at the very end of a very long, um, a very long trip re- researching a book had a bag stolen out of a car while he was there. Somebody's hand came in through the window and grabbed the bag that all his notes were in. And I think, oh, what a heartbreak. In your book, there's an interesting quote. It says, Lonely Planet is a small company dedicated to publishing books about country nobody ever visited. What was the context of that? Do you remember? You know, I can't remember which one, but I, you know, we we have done that, and I'm I'm always proud when we do do that because I I think, you know, it's part of your philosophy, isn't it? Then? Yeah, I mean, I I I love the civilized travel. You know, I I'm just as happy at you know nice restaurants in Provence and pretty guest houses and great pastas in Italy, and I I like that stuff as well as you do, Rick. I mean, I I know why it's so good. I've I've done a lot of it, and I enjoy it. But I also like the edgy places. I mean, I, you'd say you like India, and I can understand why. Sure. The edgy places are fun. And that there is a, a real kick out of doing a guidebook that you know nobody else is doing. You know, I, I really like the fact that if you want a Mongolia guide, come and talk to us. Or if you want an Iran guide, come and talk to us. Doesn't Hillary Bratt do Hillary guidebooks Bratt that does are more one. obscure than yours? Hillary does. I mean, I, and I've got to say that I, I respect Hillary enormously. Because, <laughs> she makes you look so mainstream. Well, Hillary is the, is the definition of an eccentric English woman, and she is terrific. I mean, she's a hard traveler as well. Oh, yeah. We, I, I, I tell a Hillary Bratt story. I, I, I went with a bunch of travel writers and um, travel publishers and Hillary. We all were staying in the same little Black Forest Hotel in Germany once after the Frankfurt Book Fair. And we went out walking one day and we, we brought back an amazing assortment of mushrooms, which we just gave to the chef at the restaurant and said, mushroom pasta tonight. He was very concerned about this, but Hillary knew exactly which ones were safe to eat and which ones weren't. And um, she went through them with the, the chef. There were a couple that he just didn't want to cook them because he was, you know, afraid he was going to kill us. And she eventually said, "Okay, well, leave those couple out." <laughs> but that one, even though you're a bit uncertain, I am positive it's okay. Hillary knows her mushrooms. As she well. knows her mushrooms. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Tony Wheeler, and Tony is the founder of Lonely Planet, and he's written a book that tells the story: Unlikely Destinations, the Lonely Planet story. Tony, my books are with no apologies for American travelers, and I just that's my market, and that's who I write to. Now, you write books that are coming from Australia, and that's a pretty small market, so you've got to open it up. Do you have to make any compromises to fill the needs of Brits as well as Americans, or, or how do you handle that? A little bit. You know, we, we, we want fresh language. We want the things to be you know, interesting to read and you know, not be stuffy. But at the same time, we're, we're very aware that a lot of different people are using our books. And 
I always say try and avoid expressions that in the English language really relate only to one country. You know, and there are lots of words that only Americans use or only the British use or only Australians use. And you've really got to Or that avoid. can be really rude in one country and not in another. Absolutely. I mean, there are some famous mistakes. I mean, the, 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 the perfect one, of course, is the British um, use of a rubber, which is a, a pencil eraser in, in Britain and is a condom in America. That's right. You know, so there, there are those sort of words, you know, that you can two, what do they say? Two people divided by a common language. But also, we know a lot of um, people of whom English is not their first language use our books. Because if you're, if you're a Frenchman and you're going to um, Samoa or Tonga in the Pacific, there is not going to be a guide in French. You're probably going to have to use our book. Wouldn't Norwegians, for instance, if they travel? Norwegians, there's no books. There's four Norwegians, Norwegians. What are yep, they going to They're going to buy our books in English. I mean, we have a big market in, um, in countries like Norway or the Netherlands or Sweden where our books are the only option. But equally, you have a big market in countries like Germany or France or mm-hmm. Italy where there are lots of books in the local language. The obscure places, they're going to have to read them in English. You have to have a style, an editing style that It's that straightforward takes to the into point, yeah. yeah. Now, you're a powerful publisher and you're a political person. Do you have a political agenda in your work? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that when you go to a country, the politics is important as well. And we were saying earlier that, you know, food is, is just as important as how good the museum is. You, you know, you, you may enjoy the museum all day, but if you don't get a good meal at night, you know, it's not going to be a great experience. So these things are all factors in the, the travel experience. As are the politics. To As be, are the politics. I was just yeah. in Mostar. Where they, uh, well, they've had a, a war. Had a war. Yeah. And, I mean, there's... What was it grand, about? Grandmothers were raped in the mosque. Yeah. And then the other grandmothers were raped in the church. And now you've got all of these minarets and steeples sticking up. And, you've and got build, a new, they're busy building bigger ones. Yeah. yeah. And you've got a rebuilt bridge that was the symbol of the city. Yeah. And, and it looks good too, doesn't it? <laughs> it's great. And to go there and to not have an appreciation or an interest in the politics. And, You're not going to understand. You know, it's you, ridiculous. That, that, yeah. You see that bridge you now and they did a really good job of rebuilding it. Yeah. But the rebuilding it was a symbol that, you know, this disaster was being healed in some way. But if you didn't know that it had been destroyed, you wouldn't, you know, appreciate the fact that it's been rebuilt. You've got to have that politics. How has travel shaped your politics? It's funny. I, I think, you know, they say that as you get older, you, you go more and more to the right. And I finally think I'm going more and more to the left. There are terrible inequalities in our world. And I'm uncomfortable with a, a lot of the... We, we are so wealthy in the West these days. You know, we, we all have so much. And I've got so much. I mean, I, I know I'm so well off. And yet I don't, I don't like to see it flaunted the way it is sometimes. Do you feel like the work that you do can prepare a traveler to have a beneficial impact on his outlook through his travel? I sometimes say with our books that the guidebooks have to do a number of things. They have to be just straightforward guidebooks. You arrive at some place you've never been to before. You come out of the train station. The guidebook has to say, turn right, you will get mugged. Turn left, there's some really nice guest houses. You know, that sort of very straightforward life-saving information almost it needs mm-hmm. to be there. But equally, the guidebook needs to inform you, make you a better traveler, make sure you, not make sure, but help you not Prime to Prime make... somebody to have a valuable experience as well yeah. as an efficient and budget yeah. and safe experience. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, not to make the, the stupid gaffes that you can make if you don't understand a little bit about the culture. But equally, understand it a bit better. If you go there and you know a little bit about their religion, you're going to appreciate the church or the mosque or the temple a lot more than if you go there and it's just a weird building. I traveled from Istanbul to Kathmandu with a guy who just got a degree in comparative religion studies at Stanford. 
Afghanistan for I didn't realize it until I got halfway through Afghanistan, but it's nice to have somebody with you who knows about the different religions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they really do open doors to you. But even I, I remember traveling around India with our kids when they were quite small. We made a game of the temples. There's a Ganesh temple. How do you know it's the god Ganesh? Because there's the elephant-headed figure. And that, that little rat that you see outside, the stone rat, that's the god's vehicle because every Hindu god has a vehicle, and a, an animal that um, supposedly transports that god. Well, for the kids, this became a game. And, you know, after a, a week in India, they had the Shiva temple, a Vishnu temple, something, you know, which you'd think you'd have to be some sort of scholar of Hinduism to understand. Your kids are in their 20s now, and they've traveled every year somewhere. What are they doing these days? Both of them work for Lonely Planet. My son is a computer technician. My daughter is a commissioning editor. All right. So both of them are involved in the Still involved family in the business. Tony, you have spent a good part of your life in the last 35 years on the road, building up this massive travel publishing place. A lot of time uh, away from your wife, I would imagine, with your laptop. Does, is your wife jealous of your laptop? Now, how did you find this out? My, my, my wife is extreme, not jealous of my laptop, but thinks I spend far too long on with it. And, I, and it's a bunch of factors. I mean, one of them is that I, my handwriting is so appalling that I, what I write down in my notebook during the day, I have to pretty quickly get it transcribed before I've forgotten what it is I've written. And another factor is the technology today is just driving us more and more to use the laptop. I mean, it's, it's no longer just a thing that you write your notes in. It's also the communications okay. tool that you get your email. So your wife, like my wife, considers it Lady Laptop. She considers it a terrible device. Lady so. Laptop. All yeah. right. He's the founder of Lonely Planet Publications, and as travelers know, Lonely Planet covers the entire world, and Tony has written a new book called Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today I'm joined by Tony Wheeler. Tony Wheeler is the founder of Lonely Planet Publications, the biggest travel publisher on the planet. Lonely Planet has guidebooks to literally every country in the world. Can you say that? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Maybe uh, 99% of the countries on the planet. And he's written a new book telling the story of his work called Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story. And I tell you, it was a very interesting read. That might be partly because you're my competitor, <laughs> but I just well, we've thought we've had great. similar experiences, Rick. We really have, and we talk about that. And when you think of all the travel writers that are really uh, busy today, we all started. I mean, the guys whose names you know started in the '70s as uh, guys running around, uh, learning that hey, information's important if you're going to be traveling. Information's important. The other thing that intrigues me, it, it's all travelers becoming publishers rather than publishers thinking we should do travel. Well, the successful ones. Yeah, I think that's a compliment to our buying public. Yeah, yeah, it is. They they, they recognize what it's about. I think it's a grassroots kind of thing, and I'm, I'm, it's great to talk to you. When you publish guidebooks, you have to be concerned about. Delicate politics, frankly. you got a situation like Burma where there's serious human rights abuses and you're writing a guidebook telling people to go there. Um, how do you handle that? Well, we don't tell people to go there. We give them the information. It's up to them. And we, we really, under, with that book specifically, we very much underline why you shouldn't go there. And if you decide that you don't want to go there because you feel it's wrong, well, then I can, I can see why you might feel that. My feeling is, and I've got a lot of friends in Burma, people who basically are involved in some way or other in tourism, and, you know, if tourists stop going, they're, they're living, their everyday existence is cut out from underneath them. So from that point of view, I think the tourists should go there. And I, I've, you know, there are people who've worked with, the, with Aung San Suu Kyi and the elected should-be government of the country. So they, 
They're not coming at it from a, the military dictatorship's perspective. But I think that's a, that's a situation with many countries. You have to think about the, the ups and downs of visiting and the good points and the bad points about it. I went to a conference once called uh, Tourism, a Vital Force for Peace. And I just really believe fundamental to all this stuff is the more people can understand each other by meeting each other one-on-one, it's got to be a good thing. In both directions, us, us visiting directions. them and them meeting us when we go there. Is it Myanmar or Burma? It depends what you want to call it. So uh, why, the, did, why did you call it Burma instead of Myanmar? Well, we, we called it both. that. We, we call it in our book these days. I think we say Myanmar because that is officially the name of the country. Yeah. You know, the, it, it's, it may have had a different name at one point, but as far as the United Nations are concerned and as far as the, the passports and the stamp on your passport are concerned, it's Myanmar. So you've got to but deal there, with this a lot, don't you? There's, you do, yeah. And, the, there, and there is a quite legitimate argument for why it should not be called Burma, and that is that the Burmese are only one of the people of Burma, yeah. that they're the majority people, but they're... The Myanmar is a country which incorporates the Burmese people and many other people as well. Now, the people who oppose tourism to Burma and oppose the, the, the government, um, basically they oppose anything the government does. So the fact the government has called it Myanmar is opposed as well, which, you know, I can understand that too. Well, you write guidebooks and when you travel around, there's, there's a body of water called the Persian Gulf, isn't there? Well, there's a body of water called the Persian Gulf from the Iranian side of the Gulf, from the other side of the Gulf, the Arabian Gulf, and there's also a body of water to the north of Japan called the Sea of Japan. But as far as the Koreans are concerned, it's to the east of Korea, and it is the East Sea. So does your Japan guidebook actually call it the Sea of Japan, and your Korean guidebook call it the East Sea? And it causes us a huge amount of trouble with the Japanese government. We do that. You you let that trump the uh, concerns. Yeah, because, you know, in Korea, no Korean wants to go down and dip their feet when they go to the beach in the Sea of Japan. Right. Japan was the country that occupied them, that treated them terribly. They don't want to go to the Sea of Japan. We have had a lot of trouble. We've had a delegation from the Japanese government come around to our office and present in great detail the information informing us that we are incorrect and we should fix this problem, please. And, and just we, from a simple didn't. marketing point of view, I mean, I, I've got a book called uh, The Best of Eastern Europe, and people who live there don't consider themselves Eastern Europeans. They don't like it at all. And no. But if I call it Central Europe, my, my buying public wouldn't know what it covers. Yeah, and we, we're actually, we're, we've got that problem right now with a book that we title with a lot of, uh, you know, asterisks to it, Western Balkans. It incorporates the Balkans, but it also incorporates Albania, and it also incorporates um, Slovenia. And Slovenia is not part of the Balkans at all. So the Slovenes probably aren't. The the Slovenes are not happy about it at all. But what are we going to call it? Are we going to call it the Western Balkans plus Albania and also Slovenia? Croatia and friends. Croatia and friends, or Croatia and friends and people we weren't friends with at one time, or ex-Yugoslavia and also. (laughs) It's hopeless. Bill Dalton wrote a guidebook to Indonesia. It was the classic, it was the dominant, the best guidebook, the Indonesian Mm. handbook. And for a while, I understand, it was outlawed, I guess, technically by their government, not available for sale in the country. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had problems like that with your books that have been so, not that you've been wrong politically, but the government just didn't want you to tell what was going on and they wouldn't let your book in? Yeah, um, there's a sort of defining line, you know, whether you can't sell the book in that country. And that certainly happened with Bill's Indonesia book. It couldn't be sold in Indonesia. But it wasn't actually confiscated when you arrived. Have you ever had that problem? That's we have. Um, we've, we've had it v- severely in one or two countries in Africa. Once upon a time, Malawi, we, uh, we weren't very complimentary to, I think it was Hastings Banda, who was president for life. And um, our Malawi book, and I've President for life. You, Kim Il-sung in North Korea is the president beyond life. Oh, He's man. still officially the president even now. Political correctness must be an interesting thing. I get a lot of people telling me I can't talk about bullfights because we don't want to promote that and so on. And, you know, I just feel like I'm not here to make 
a judgment. This is a reality. It happens. I'm not saying do it. I'm not saying don't. Uh, how do you handle that in your in your? I, I the same thing. I mean, bullfights. I've never been to a. Re- I've been to some of those mock bullfights they hold in Provence, but I've never been to a real bullfight, and I don't particularly think I want to. But it is part of Spanish culture, even if it is a declining part these days, I guess. And it seems to me, if someone going there wants to do it, if they that's their decision. If they want to go and see that, that's their decision. And I think then it's the guidebook writer's duty to tell them how much the tickets cost, and you know which is the sunny side of the stadium. You don't want to be without letting his personal down. feelings get in the way of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the start, it's, it's it's right up to him to say this is the history of it. This this is the book that Hemingway wrote about it. This is why the Spanish love it. Right. And here is the counter argument that it's a very cruel sport. It's you killing can lay out animals. Both sides. Yeah. Now, in my writing, I have to admit, I, I've got a few personal things that I'm passionate about, and I'd be sure to talk about them. And I take that little guilty pleasure in injecting that into my books. I'm really yeah. into traffic-free zones. Good, I'm really good. into uh, alternatives to the American war on drugs, smarter drug policy. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, really into longer vacations. Yes, and uh, when I get I a chance, that. <laughs> I talk about how great the French are at uh, creating the vacation and uh, yeah. this sort of thing. Do you have any little guilty pleasures that way that you sneak into your publications? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. I hadn't really thought of it in that in that respect. I mean, I'm a, I can be a hedonist at times. I mean, my my trouble, I really, Maureen, my wife is always telling me, is I have a very short attention span, and that um, a lot of things that people really like, you know, lots of, I I get tired of very quickly. I love going to beaches, but after I've been on the beach for half an hour, I've sort of seen it and. I'm getting sand in the my novel, and um, I'd rather be sitting in a more comfortable chair to be reading it. Um, I do have guilty pleasures. Yeah, I, I'm I'm someone who likes that drink at sunset, and there are some places in the world, you know, uh, Mexico always struck me as one of the most civilized places to go for an evening sundown. And there'd be some very nice looking square, and there'd be tables out in the around the square, and the sun would be going down, and that's really the time for a ice cold cerveza. Have you ever picked up a fungus going barefoot into a shower? I've picked up. I, I've had um, tropical ulcers. You know, you, you cut yourself and it doesn't heal up, and that's uh, and you know eventually. You go and get a shot of penicillin, and that seems to cure it. I, I've had a few things go wrong. Do you go barefoot in showers? Yeah, I do. I, 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 I've I, never, I, you know, people say, oh, I wouldn't step into a shower. You'll pick something up. I've, I've spent 100, 120 days a year for 25 years walking into strange showers. Barefoot. And, you know, I clean my teeth with whatever water comes out <laughs> of the taps. And I, I'm reasonably careful about the drinking water in places. But I've, the, the idea of cleaning your teeth with mineral water all the time, forget right. it. What's the last thing you stole from a hotel? <laughs> Do you know, I, I, I've almost got in the habit of doing the opposite, that I, I really don't like this, you know, constantly opening little shampoo bottles and taking a quarter inch out of the top. And I, I tend to pick up one in one hotel and use it for a week and then, you know, leave the... I don't say leave the Sheratons at the Hilton, but, you know, leave, the, leave a shampoo bottle somewhere further down the, the line. I have the same exact ethic. Do I, you? They're called yeah. the Itsy Bitsies, and I never oh, use those things. No, I, I put out my own bar of soap in my own, I've got a little bottle of shampoo that lasts me three weeks. Yeah, it does last a long time. And if I, in these hotels, if I open up a soap, I want to use it tomorrow. They throw it away. They make me open a new one. Up. I what know. Oh, that, 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 hotels that do that, not all hotels do it, but occasionally you do find that. You know, and if they're going to do that, you know, then I just hide the soap away and put it out again. Yeah. God, aren't we frugal? This is I'm, appalling. I, I used to have a thing in my book that says, you hang this piece of paper up, it says, uh, don't wash my towels unless I put them on the floor. You now know? they all do, of course. <laughs> but, but they've stopped doing that now. So I need yeah. to re- resurrect that whole notion because they still <laughs> insist on washing every day. Tony Wheeler, when you cross a border and they say, what's your occupation, what do you say? 
I say publisher usually, not, publisher. not a writer. Don't, do not be a writer or a journalist. Even Journalists is even worse than writers. In fact, one of the worst places now to be a journalist as a, as a foreign traveler is, guess where? The United States. I've heard. Yeah. Why is I've, that? Because for most Western countries, the visa waiver system means as a visitor, whether it's on business or as a tourist, you don't need a visa. If you're an Australian, a British, a New Zealander, a French, a Japanese, unless you're a journalist. When this, this first came in, a lot of journalists didn't realize and just turned up here on quite innocuous things. One guy was an Australian rock music journalist who'd come to interview Madonna and was arrested and handcuffed and sent back to Australia. This is not a good way to attract tourists. As a publisher, you have to deal with all of these temptations for travelers, black market things. You used to be able to buy something and sell it at a border to make money. All of this sort of street smarts for travel. Yeah, Is that there's, still an issue? There, there's certain, a certain amount of it. One of the things we're very, very positive about warning about, there's lots of places in the world where messing with drugs is complete madness. It's just flat-out stupid. It's I mean, flat-out stupid. You know, if you want to end up in jail, you're much more comfortable ending up in jail in, in the United States than, rather than Turkey or, rather than Turkey or, or doing it in um, Singapore where you're going to be hung for it. Right. You know, and I, and I totally disagree. I don't think people should be hung for drugs. Right. I mean, I don't think people should be hung for, for murder even, but, but for drugs even more so. Well, as a guidebook publisher, I would suppose that when it's a moral obligation to tell to, people. To warn people, to, yeah. yeah. I mean, but people, people continue to be stupid. But as far as the, um, the buying things and selling things go, look, there are lots of little tricks that people learn. People used to fund their travels in perpetuity just by knowing what to buy and sell at borders. Well, the Poles were wonderful at it. I mean, the, when young Polish people started traveling before the, the wall fell down and, you know, Poland became part of the the Western world, the Poles were amazing buyers and sellers. And I've got Polish friends, you know, who the buying carpets in India and selling them in Singapore and then buying the watches in Singapore and selling those in, in India and then going somewhere else. It, it was phenomenal how they did this. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Tony Wheeler, founder of Lonely Planet Publications. We're talking about his new book, Unlikely Destinations, The Story of Lonely Planet. To me, travel has a spiritual dimension. I think it does. I think there are places you go there, and it can be something that has no religion in it at all. You realize what a wonderful world we live in. It looks so good, and that, and that can be a natural thing. I love walking in Nepal. The Himalayas you know, are, are fantastic. I've had so many mornings where you, you wake up in the morning, and you open your tent, and you look out there, and there's some mountain there, you know, one oh, of the man. highest mountains in the world. And it just takes your breath away. And, yeah. you, you know, you, you feel privileged to be alive. It is such a feeling. But equally, you know, there are man-made things as well. And it can be something like you know, the rice fields in Bali or the Philippines where they, these little rice fields trip up the hills and they are just so beautiful. You realize why it's inspired artists in those countries to paint them or towns in Italy. You, you look at it and you think that this was... This was done to the glory of God by hardworking people 500 years ago. Well, it was, and it was done to the glory of postcard makers today. You know? right. yeah. <laughs> it's like they took the postcard and thought, that's a wonderful postcard. I'll oh. build a town that looks like it. I always think the greatest cathedral in Europe is the top of the Alps. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just incredible, yeah. and you can get that in the Himalayas too. Boy, when you're traveling, though, whether you're a religious person or not, you encounter religion, and it just permeates most societies you travel in. Yeah, like. one, one of the nicest religious experiences I've had recently was in Iran, where I was walking around the main square in Isfahan, and I, a carpet salesman came out and tried to sell me a carpet and then just wanted to practice his English. And when we got down towards the big mosque that's at the end of the square in Isfahan, he asked if I'd been to it, and I said, yeah, I'd been in earlier in the day. And he said, well, you should go in again now because it's night. And um, you're getting free at night when tourists get charged in the daytime. But he said it looks quite different at night. 
When we got to the mosque, it was prayer time and the guard there wouldn't let me in. And my carpet salesman guide immediately started arguing with this guy. And after a few minutes, and other people joined in the argument as well, the guard said, look, they all say you should go in. And really, I agree. And he said, if you go in and keep to one side and keep quiet, you won't disturb the people who are praying. And we all think you should go and see it. And I thought, look, here I am in a strictly Islamic country. It's an Ayatollah who rules it effectively. And yet they're so proud of their religion and their mosque. They're inviting me, they're, they're insisting that as a non-believer, I should go in and see it. And, I, and that's not the impression we get of these Islamic no. countries. When you travel, it breaks that down and you see the the fundamental deep down inside of religion to be a peaceful and beautiful thing. Mm. And you can recognize how it's mucked up by yeah, a lot of it is. It is mucked up by a lot of people, unfortunately. And yeah. it's, um, you know, the other thing that I, I enjoyed in Iran was there's a lot of joking about the religion. It's a great film if, you know, if, People there's like joking Iran. about the religion in Iran. Oh, absolutely. You're kidding. There's, I didn't think there was well, any sense of humor in Iran. No, there's a, that, that, a huge sense of humor in Iran. Uh, but Tell I, me I, more. Well, I, I just recently um, saw a woman, an Iranian comedian. She was actually telling me a, a joke about arriving in America and um, someone looking at her passport and saying, you're from Iran, which really annoys the Iranians calling it Iran. And she said, yes, there I was at I-migration in Amerika. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll do it. Tony, do you struggle with the morality of pushing travel when everybody is realizing travel contributes to global warming? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly in the UK, which seems to be worrying about it more than some other places, the word travel guilt is becoming part of the vocabulary. And every article about a a travel trip in a travel magazine or a newspaper in Britain is always followed at the end, it seems, with how much you need to contribute to some sort of carbon matching thing to balance the damage that your trip is doing. So it is becoming a major element. And what particularly worries me is is the almost frivolous nature of some of the travel. I think it's one thing to go off on some trip and go here and go there and see this and do that and contribute to the economy in this way or contribute in that way. But to rush off to some place for a party weekend and spend the whole the whole weekend just getting drunk and not even stay in a hotel and, you know, get on the plane and fly back to... And this is from Britain in particular again, because they're the ones talking about it. For people who aren't aware of this, yeah, this is a new kind of uh, travel phenomenon. Uh, Hen parties and stag parties where all a bunch of gangs of friends will get together to celebrate before a wedding and they will fly on a dirt cheap flight from London to, what, Prague and Berlin and... Tallinn. Tallinn has become a party town. changing the landscape of these towns because they're inundated with these low-end travelers that are just going there for the cheap drinks and to be out late at night. They don't even have a hotel and they fly home. Yeah. And the carbon emissions to, to pay for that um, trip to the bar are now, just ridiculous. I think Europeans are going to be more inclined to accept and get to the point where they pay carbon taxes to be as much as they can be carbon neutral and things but, like that. But is this. that an answer, Rick? I mean, uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it really is. I mean, it's putting a Band-Aid on the, on the scratch when really we shouldn't have scratched it in the first place. Yeah. Well, this is something we'll be dealing with. Ten years from now, will travelers be holding a paper guidebook? Who knows? Today I say that the guidebook is not going to die. We're going to keep researching guidebooks. But whether the guidebook will be on paper is a different thing. And I think the guidebook could eventually be something. It'll be like a combination of a some sort of PlayStation thing and a small computer and a GPS and a cell phone. And we'll weld all this together. And not only will the guidebook tell you what a really good restaurant is, but it'll point an arrow in which direction you should start walking. And at the same time, it'll say, press here to make a reservation. I would imagine the fundamental value 
of the information and the fundamental beauty of travel will be exactly the same, though. Yeah, that won't change. That won't change. Tony Wheeler, founder of Lonely Planet Publications, author of Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story. Tony, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for visiting us. Great talking to you, too, Rick. Happy travels. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program, listen again in our audio archives, and find links to audio and video podcast features. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show, or add your comments in our ongoing message boards. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Stencil, Sonia Grosset, and Rachel Unk, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.